You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. This is the Marketing Podcast Network. Stories influence, teach, and inspire us. But what about the storytellers who create them? Uncorking a Story profiles storytellers to uncover how their background and life experiences influence the stories they create. We learn what motivates them, their path to success, and what fuels them to keep creating. It all starts by asking one simple question. Where does your story begin? Welcome to Uncorking a Story. Now here's your host, Mike Carlin. Well, hello and welcome to Uncorking a Story. I'm your host, Mike Carlin, and today I'm excited to say that my guest is Mark Thompson. Now, Mark is a world-renowned radio host and one half of the infamous Mark and Brian, heard every morning for 25 years on the nationally syndicated Mark and Brian show, originating from KLOS in uh, L.A. A member of the Radio Hall of Fame, Mark helped change the face of Morning Drive and joins me today to talk about his memoir, Don't Bump the Record Kid, My Adventures with Mark and Brian. Well, welcome to Uncorking a Story, Mark Thompson. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate you having me. Yeah, it's great. Great to have you here. And uh, Mark, I'm curious, where does uh, where does <clears throat> the story begin? Um, being that I'd never written a book, um, when when I knew that I was going to do it, I thought maybe I should buy a book that teaches me how to write a book. And just saying the words sounds so ridiculous that I didn't even look into it, though I'm sure they exist. And what I really wanted to do more than anything, because you mentioned very kindly that we were inducted into the Radio Hall of Fame. When, when I was in the middle of that first few years, and in few, I mean the first six, seven, maybe eight, it was unbelievable how big it felt to me. Um, we were number one. We, we, in 1991, we had a 12 rating in the morning and our nearest competitor had a four. That's how ridiculous it was. It was just giant. And all three networks were coming to us for uh, television opportunities. It was just white hot. And I remember thinking in those times, we're going to be in the hall of fame. And I thought it was like the NFL, you retire, sit around for five years. Then they put you in Uh, five years came six, seven, eight, around the ninth year. My friend, Laura Stringer, called me and said, what's going on? And she launched this massive campaign to get us in. And even though we got uh, the most votes that first year, they, they passed on us. And we didn't get in until the second year. And it felt like we had to kind of rem- remind them, you know, hey, here we are. Um, and that really threw me because all those years I had thought to myself and, and you know how we sometimes kid ourselves, but I thought we're, we're going to, we're going to go in. There's no question. And it, if I'm being honest, it felt like we barely got in. And instead of doing the insane thing, which was getting a megaphone and stand on a street corner and yell, Hey, what about Mark and Brian? I decided to tell the story. Um, I wanted to tell it from the viewpoint of where I sat. And I wanted people who love that show to be able to understand what was happening behind the scenes while they were listening to it. And, you know, nothing is what it seems ever. And so in telling that story, I shared the great things the, the, the adulation, the success, the money, the, the, the fame, the whatever you want to talk about, but also it's real life. And as I was going through those great times, there were also some horrific times in many cases on the same day. Uh, and I wanted people to know how realistic it is because it's true. As I found out, 
the, the very highest of the highs, the very biggest accolades one can receive makes the downside, the, the, the negative part, even harsher. And I wanted to talk about those things because it is real life. And I am a realist. I never kid myself about things. And so I thought it was a good story. I was one of only two people who can tell it. So I sat down and started day one when I got the phone call in February of 1985, presenting me with the idea of taking on a partner because I had been uh, a seasoned radio entertainer for many years. And, and the book takes you from that moment. It opens with that moment and takes you through until the day that I walked out of the building for the last time. Wow. So where does, um, where did your career begin in radio? My hometown, Muscle Shoals, Alabama, there was this, uh, um, uh, I say small, you know, I don't mean farm town small where there's one red light and all the tractors ignore it. Uh, we were a small but yet sizable town. And we had two top 40 radio stations in town. And at night when I was a kid, I had, I had difficulty sleeping because my father, who was a bank president, and afraid that we might burn an extra watt of energy, he would allow no lights on. So here I am, I'm eight, and I'm laying in a pitch black, quiet house. And sleep was just, I mean, with that imagination, I could see the monsters that were going to eat me clearly. Uh, and I found that if I turned on my radio, the light from the dial would illuminate my room enough so that I could see that nothing was there. And each night, and it worked, I slept, it relaxed me. And each night I would lay there and I would listen to WOWL and the, the tonality of the jock's voice. I could hear the, the, the needle rake through the vinyl of the, I could even hear the air conditioner inside the radio station when it would turn on. And it was those moments where I fell in love with what radio was. And I couldn't have known that five years, six years from that time, I would become that voice on that very radio station. Wow. And yeah. And when I got to the radio station as an employee, I was doing weekends and I loved radio so much that I, I only worked at midnight on Friday and Saturday night, but I would spend every moment I had at the radio station because I could, they can't kick me out again. I, I work here. And there was a box of tapes in the production room and I listened to them and they were air checks of major market radio stations, 10Q and KHJ in Los Angeles, WLS Chicago, WABC in New York. And Mike, I had never heard anything like that. It, they were so, it was just, I, it was big and professional and the jocks sounded great. And at that 16 year point in my life, I decided that I want that. I want to become that good. I want to be good enough to, to sound like that. And I knew that the moment that I could, meaning high school graduation, I'm leaving. Because this dream to become that jock in a major market, which is a big city, um, it wasn't going to come to me. I had to go to it. So I packed and I left. And my, my plan was simple. Um, it had to be because I'm 16. Uh, I thought that each new job that I take will be in a larger market for more money. And the plan was eventually I'll just dump out into major market. Simplistic and stupid. Yes. Did it work like a charm? <laughs> it, it just, it worked and it didn't come easily. I never, other than the one time, where I was given the light bulb moment of my career. I never had any program director teach me anything. Everything I learned about my craft, which was personality radio, I taught myself by listening to other jocks to see what they did. And in most cases, I, I would learn what not to do as opposed to what to do. And I would also, each day I went to work, I took a boom box 
and I would push record right before I did a talk break. And then as I drove home, I would listen back to the entire show. It took about 20 minutes. And I would, when I did something good, I knew it. I knew it was good what I did it. But what I learned the most from is stuff like if I had a, a listener on the phone on the air and I thought it was great when I did it, then listening back, I go, God, that's way too long. I should have gotten out at that first giggle and hit the spot and get out of that. So I taught myself, self-taught to do what it is that I do. And much of that is in the book. Yeah, I, I just love that that vision of you kind of growing up in a dark room as a young kid with like the light of the radio being your like protector almost, you know, or being your company. Um, I, I've always so felt cool. like, because at the age of eight, you need things. You're wondering about things. And the light from the radio physically did light up my room, but it also illuminated my life. I didn't know that I would be so in love with something that's so simple. And, you know, Mike, when you think about it, and I clearly have, you know, when I was in uh, the prime of my broadcasting career, whether that was with Brian or before I got with him, um, you know, each time I would get on the air, the four hours that I spent on the air were the most important and most fun four hours of my entire day. I would spend the rest of the hours preparing for that time. And when you, when you stop down to look at what it really is, when I was sitting in the control room, I had hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people listening to me. I was number one in Birmingham the first time I was there. Yet what I was actually physically doing, I was sitting in this little bitty room. Of, most control rooms are very small because they want to cut down on the echo. And when you, when you literally look at it, I'm sitting there completely alone by myself talking to hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people. So you have to be a little bit insane because I never noticed it. I never realized that fact, but that's, that's the truth. So being a little bit crazy on, on the good side is a good thing. Yeah. Um, you know, you mentioned your dad being very frugal, um, which worked in your favor because you had to have the light of the radio to, to kind of illuminate your, your room. But uh, you also mentioned he was a bank president. What was his reaction when you said, hey, after high school, it's not college. I'm going to I'm going to make, you know, I'm going to I'm going to do the WKRP thing, to, to, you know, well, what did he think? Well, our relationship had gone south way early. Mm -hmm. um, he was, as I said, a very driven man, a bank president. He wanted me to follow in his footsteps, which meant. Uh, college degree, uh, put on a suit and sit behind the desk. And many times I went down to the bank to see him and I saw what it was. And I had no clue at eight or nine or 10 what it was that I wanted to do, but I knew it wasn't that. And I shunned it. Uh, I, I just refused to do it. Now, my father was very big on work ethic. He had, I had a list of chores that would choke most people. And I did, but, but I'm glad that I did because I did learn how, number one, how hard things are because at eight, I was cutting an acre every week um, on a push mower. They didn't have self-propelled at that point. And you learn, first of all, how hard it is, the investment of time, but you also learn the joy of finishing the job and looking back and the yard looks great and you did it. And so I learned that from him, but when he realized that I was not going to play the mini me role, he, he figuratively just gave up. It wasn't his back. My father was never one who could say, I love you. He never once hugged me, showed any affection of any kind. He was just hardcore. And the part of it that pisses me off is that, you know, he had all the right to choose what he wanted to become. And he did. How come I don't get that? How come that never entered his mind? That, that, and look, it could be a father who wants the best for his son. And he may have looked at me and thought, this is an idiot. So I'm going to have to sh help him. I will show him. But I just didn't want it. 
I wasn't attracted to it. And do you know that, that, you know, success came to me fairly early. I was doing very well and I have no clue how he felt about it because he never, he never talked to me and I didn't really talk to him as far as, Hey, there's great things happening. Let me tell you about them. I didn't do it because I knew for a fact he didn't want to hear it. So when I left, it was kind of see ya. And I will tell you, there were two things. It was never spoken of. There was no decision made, but I was, I'm, I'm still proud of two things that a lot of people can't say. It may not be important to them, but it was to me. Once I left my parents' home, I never went back to live ever. And I never once called and said, I need money. Not once. And there were times that were lean. I could have used a 20, but I never did that because my mother would give it to me, but eventually my father would find out about it. And I couldn't have that. Yeah. So when, um, the success hits early, um, which is not, you know, you, you listen to a lot of radio, um, you know, you, you hear about the struggles, you know, a lot about the struggles, how it's, it's very hard to, to make a living in radio involves a lot of moving, you know, you gotta be aggressive, try not to get fired. Um, when does Brian come into your life or when, when does that idea that, Hey, do you want to take on a partner? Um, well, when is that question asked of you? I got into radio in 1973 when I was a junior in high school and I left home in 75 or six, something like that, uh, to begin my quest. And uh, relatively quickly after I'd gone to Knoxville and had my light bulb moment and it changed my life, both my career and my life, uh, things started happening very quickly. My first job after that was Birmingham doing nights. I was number one. I wanted to get into morning radio. So my next job was in Savannah, Georgia, uh, where I did my first morning show. Then I went to Montgomery where I became a really, it was the, my first experience with fame. I became a local celebrity. Um, the act that I'd been working on was finally moved away from AM, which was dying. Music-based AM radio was, was dead. All the kids were listening to FM. So when I put my act on that, it worked big. And it was right around the time I needed to leave Montgomery that I got the call from my friend, Mark St. John, because uh, he and I were trying to work together and he had left to go to I-95 in Birmingham. And the idea was he was going to go up there to program it, get it in shape. And then he was going to bring me up. He called me one day and he said, the general manager and I are going to drive down. It was about an hour, hour and a half. <clears throat> and we're going to listen tomorrow. So plan a good one. I did. Uh, and then I waited for the phone to ring. St. John finally called and he said, Bernie, that was the GM. He said, Bernie hated you. So <clears throat> that would be it for that job. And in, in radio, you learn to put it away, which I did, because there'll be another one somewhere down the road. But then several months after like three months, four months later, Mark St. John called me back. And it was a February morning. It was cold. Uh, and St. John said, have you ever considered taking on a partner. And I hadn't, uh, my goal, my thing was, this was going to be me. I'm going to make it to major market. I don't know anything about a partner. And he told me about him. Um, the good side was that he was a comedian, an improvisational comedian, uh, which I didn't know a lot about. All I know is that they don't have jokes. They go up and make stuff up. Uh, which would be good for radio. The downside is that he had never been on the air ever in his life. So my biggest concern is how is that going to work? Uh, but, uh, but that was the first time it came up and I promised I would at least meet with Brian. I didn't think when I walked into that meeting, all I was doing was appeasing St. John by saying, I'll meet with him. I never expected to say yes to it when I went into that meeting with him, but we did. And we went on uh, I-95 in Birmingham as their new morning show. We were quickly number one because it worked incredibly well. But 
when I said yes to that, I really firmly in my mind believed because I really needed to get out of Montgomery. I believed that I'm just going to do this for this job year, year and a half, and then I'll get back on track. And, you know, I was with him for 27 years. Yeah. So what was the journey to the major market? Um, and what was, was LA your first major market or were there some others? Yes. Along the way? yes. We, when we became number one in Birmingham, we were a standard morning kind of radio show. We had characters that said funny things. We read stories about weird people doing weird things, the typical kind of morning entertainment, but we did it better than most. We were very, very good at what we did. And having Brian's ability to kind of make stuff up on the spot was really key to our success and where we went. Um, the next logical step, because Birmingham is a medium market, so the next logical step was large. And by large, I mean um, Atlanta, St. Louis, Detroit, maybe Tampa. Those are good-sized markets, right? But and, and, and it would be there that you would go and then jump to major, the big, big cities. And it happened just as I, just as I thought. We were uh, approached by uh, a radio station in St. Louis and a radio station in Atlanta about coming and doing their morning show. And both of them were fighting vigorously to get us. And the, K, uh, the uh, radio station in St. Louis did one of the smartest things. The general manager um, of Keishi, I still remember the call letters because of what he did, K-S-H-E. He, while going for me, they were sending stuff to my wife. Every day she would get a package in the mail. It'd be T-shirts or coffee mugs or pens. And here I am trying to decide, is it going to be St. Louis? Is it going to be Atlanta? And she would pass me in the hallway with a Keishi T-shirt. It was truly brilliant. But Atlanta was what I wanted all along. I was familiar with the Atlanta market. And the guy flew us over. And uh, we were meeting with him until the secretary stepped in and said, Mark O'Brien, your attorney's on the phone. And as I'm walking out to take the call, I'm thinking, why would Don pull us out of the what? So we get him on the phone and he said, I want you to go back into the meeting, finish it out. Don't verbally agree to anything. Obviously, don't sign anything and get back to Birmingham. Call me when you get there. And I said, did what have we done something wrong? What what's going on? And there was a pause and Don, an attorney who always is on speakerphone, he picked it up and he said, Los Angeles is called. And by that happening, they were skipping a beat Yeah, that they, we, we were skipping large market. We're supposed to go to large major has called and it's not just major. This is Los Angeles, California. I was, uh, we obviously took the job. And I was sitting on my Birmingham couch. The house was packed. My wife is a master mover. And the house was packed, floor to ceiling. The truck was coming the next morning to take us. And I'm on the phone with a reporter from the Los Angeles Times who, in my assessment, was pissed that he had been assigned to talk to me, another morning show that thought they're going to come in and take over LA. And at one point in the middle of his questions, if you can call him that, he, he kind of metaphorically put down a put down his pen. And I think he felt like he was going to make a point how ridiculous he, th he thought this was. He said to me, are you aware that Rick Dees is here? And I, I did what you just did. I smiled <laughs> and I said, yes, I am. And then a year and a half after we got there, we beat Rick. And I wish that had reporter been standing there so I could tell him, see, I was aware that he's here, but uh, yeah, that we skipped a beat and it didn't matter because when we got to LA, KLOS was a classic rock radio station. I had played top 40 my entire life as a jock. And I was sitting in my hotel room on the balcony, listening to KLOS. And I only knew a fourth of the songs and the jocks were historians. They would never speak over the intro of the record. They would never speak over the fade. It was, it was like it was religious. And I thought, how are we supposed to fit into this? 
how do we, we're idiots. We're, we're, and then it dawned on me that they, the general manager, Bill Summers, he hired us to do what it is that we do. And I got with Brian. I said, listen, day one, we hit the ground running, not even running, sprinting. We're not going to, we're not going to play around. We're not going to ease in. We're going to hit it and hit it hard. And we got on the air and we were hated. And what you do when there's a negative, and I learned this years ago, a new jock on their first day is the most hated person in the city because people, they're not comfortable with you. They don't know you. Where's the guy that was in there before you? I don't like you. Where's that other guy? So I decided we would air the calls, the negative calls. And this one guy called up because we put on a Neil Young song and it was awful. And I, we screamed, we don't want to hear this. And I raked the needle across the record and threw it into the wall. And we played Glenn Campbell, Southern Nights, and sang along with it. Um, and this guy calls up. He was in tears. And we, we have him on the air. And he said, Neil Young doesn't sing because he wants to. He sings because he has to. And we're like, sir, he sounds like he's trapped in a barbed wire fence. Nobody should sound like that. And we cranked up Glenn Campbell. Um, what we did, we were playing. We were goofing around. There was no rudeness in our vo voices. And while people hated us, they were still entertained because we weren't being nasty or rude. But what happened to us in LA in that first week, that first month, the first three months, is we became a different version of ourselves. Um, we became rebels. We bucked their system. And we didn't apologize for it. And they wound up loving. And to this day, the number one comment I get is, boy, when you guys began, I hated you. But we made an indelible mark. And yes, they might have hated us and they might have threatened to kill us, but they knew what our names were. And you were there for 25 years. Yes. Same. That's in radio. That's almost unheard of. Yeah. Jocks move around quite a bit and to spend 25 years on the same set of call letters is almost unheard of. You're mentioning, uh, what was it? A 12 share you were saying before mm -hmm. you were, could you even get numbers like that today? I mean, with the, just the fragmentation of, you know, different mediums available, whether it's, you know, streaming or, or satellite it's, it's unheard of, right? No, it is. Um, I had never heard of it. I had heard of large fluctuation in smaller markets in ratings, like big, big numbers. I didn't think it was possible in Los Angeles. But what happened was this. Um, we were brought in to be um, a top rated morning show on a classic rock radio station. And I told Brian, if we can find a way to become the top rated classic rock morning show, that's enough for us to stay. So that's what we're going to, we're going to get that. We didn't think that the goal of being number one morning show and to beat Rick Dees and all the others, Jay Thomas was on power. Um, it didn't seem possible, but what happened was that we, did very quickly become the dominant morning show in classic rock radio, but we started getting fringe listeners. These are listeners, a fringe listener is one that doesn't necessarily like classic rock, but they like you. So we started getting listeners from Jay Thomas. We started getting listeners from Rick Dees. And within a year and a half, which is crazy quick for, Mar uh, for Los Angeles, we were number one by far. The um, the uh, the book. Um, I want to get into that a little bit. I mean, I may know the book. I'm sure is a lot of a lot of this story, but I'm curious about the writing process for you. I mean, having never written a book before, um, what what was the? How would you characterize how the writing process was like? I I can tell you that the first draft. Draft number one, V1, is the single hardest level of this entire three-year project because you're, you're looking at 25 years that you have to somehow tell the story of from the inside. So how do you do that? And as, as I was beginning to process, I thought the easiest way 
for me to go about this is to do it chronologically. Start at the beginning, go year by year until the, the last year, uh, 2012, when I left. That's the best way to do it. But then after 25 years of entertainment-based morning radio, you've got thousands of stories. Some of them are great. Some are good. And you've got to decide which ones you're going to tell. But the hardest part for me, I was adamant that I not do a ghostwriter. And a ghostwriter is one who, you know, if you're going to write a book, you tell the story to the ghostwriter and then they go home and type it up in their own words. I wasn't interested. If you ask me a question, I'll answer it in a specific way, which is my way. So I'm also the world's worst typist. But I sat at my computer and I, I, with that format of chronological starting in 1985 and going all the way till the end, I started to bang out what would be this book. And it took a year for the first draft to get, to get done. Uh, but I had a system. It's like anything. I tell anybody, if you want to learn how to do something, you know, you can take a class or you can read them, you can do anything you want. But if you really want to learn how to do something, do it because you're going to, you're going to make mistakes and you're going to learn. You're going to, okay, well, okay. I won't do it that way. I'm going to do it this way. And I learned very quickly how to proceed in my own system. And it worked for me. And I got this thing and it. And, you know, I, I've, I've got the first draft sitting in that drawer. I specifically kept it because the one we wound up printing was V37. But V1 is in that drawer and I flipped through it the other day. I got to tell you, it ain't bad. <laughs> I mean, there's some crap in there and we shaved that off, but it's not, it's really not too bad for somebody who didn't know what they were doing. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. I love that you didn't give in to the temptation to to bring a ghostwriter on because, um, well, I I know there's some good ones out there, but I mean, this is your story. This is your journey, and there's almost too much on the line to yeah. to to entrust it with anybody else. How'd you come up with the title? Don't bump the record, kid. <laughs> um. So uh, I told you I fell in love with radio and and there were two places. As a kid, I was always. Uh, adventurous. I, I was bored with what I did yesterday. I want something new today. And I always wanted to go three neighborhoods over, which I wasn't allowed to do, but there's, there's new people, there's new things over there. I want to go over there and do that. And so I was attracted to radio from those late nights. I loved it. That building in that building, that's the radio station I listened to. I think I'll go in there. Um, my favorite jock was a guy named Christopher J. Ballou. Uh, he did afternoons and he was a hellion. He had these great stories. It was my first exposure to a personality because uh, he would come in and tell the most hysterical stories about when he went to wash his clothes or whatever it was. And I was really enamored with him. So I would ride my bike up to WOWL and I'd sit in the lobby hoping to meet him until they would kick me out, which became quicker and quicker the more I went. And I never saw him but but i did see they had uh, eight by ten black and whites of all the jocks on the wall so i knew what he looked like and then they started promoting that christopher was going to broadcast from a shopping center near my house and this is back in the day when the jock if they would go live on remote they would literally bring this giant console two turntables they would actually play the records from the location had a mic and the whole thing and i rode my bike up there's a, a good sized crowd and there he was that's my hero that's what he looks like relatively ugly dude but still it didn't matter that's my guy and without realizing it, i started walking toward him and he turns and he sees me and he kind of semi smiles and I got up right to the edge of the console and his first words to me, my hero speaking words that came out of his mouth and went into my ears. He said, Hey, don't bump the record kid. That was what he said. And I wound up five years later working with him at WOWL. Um, and I saw the behind the scene. He was a hard worker. 
He was the first person I saw work on his show. He wasn't good by accident. He was good by plan. And I saw that. He, I never told him the story. Uh, he wouldn't have known what I was talking about, and he probably wouldn't have been very entertained by it. Uh, but, but yeah, that was it. That's the title. It actually happened. My hero said those words to me, and I never forgot them. Yeah. So uh, tell me about um, sort of the end of the the Mark and Brian show. Um, when you know when in the, after that twenty five years, like what what was happening? What was going on? What why did the show stop? Um. When we lost our number one dominance, um, which is going to happen in entertainment, if you choose to get into that world, uh, if you're lucky enough to get your 15 minutes of fame, enjoy it while you're there and salt away your money because it is going to come to an end. At some point after people have seen or heard what it is that you do, they're kind of bored with it and they start looking for the next pretty thing. So it's not, it's not that you have to like it but you have to understand it because if you do, you'll protect your interests while you are in your 15 minutes and hours came to an end. And when it did, as I mentioned to you, when your highs are so high, the lows are going to equal that. And it was devastating to go through. Um, everything changed. Um, the way that my friends looked at me, the way that the people I worked with looked at me, but mostly Brian and I, we had always kind of finished each other's sentences. And those, those days were, were, were affected greatly. Um, and so little by little, it just started to become a job, which it never had. It had always been a joy. I started doing that Sunday afternoon evening thing where I dread going to work. And right after the 2000s, I knew I have, to, I have to leave. I have to go. There's nothing else. This was over. We got together in eight. So now we're at 15 years of this. It's over. There's nothing I can do to help this. And I had decided I'm, I'm leaving. It was a matter of when. And the, and the book details what happened and why. But shortly after 2000, I, I realized this, this has to come to an end. And it all made sense there in, in 2012 to go ahead and step out. Yeah. So um, what's life been like since then? Fantastic. Um, I'm relatively careful when it comes to any decision that I make. And we all have decisions. My father once said, which my father, by the way, even though we didn't see eye to eye, he was proficient at telling me things that were life lessons that I could learn from. And I learned much from him. But he always said, making decisions are easy. Living with them is the hard part. And stepping away from Mark and Brian would be, without question, the single biggest thing I would ever do because I was not only stepping away from the single biggest thing I had ever done in my career, I'm stepping away from a massive paycheck. Um, and you, you have to make sure this is what you want. And as I was going through that decision process, I would talk to people that I respected and get their take on it. And my wife said to me, you can't make a decision. And I said, I've never heard anybody more mistaken than you are. I'm getting input to make sure that I'm on track, that I'm on base. But when I make a decision, it's firm. And that was it. When I decided that I was leaving, I knew I was going to get massive pushback from people who made a lot of money off of me and Brian being in those chairs and me stepping away would affect that. And I had to be firm. I couldn't be deterred by whatever it was they were going to do or say or offer. And my, again, with my father, he, he once told me, and of course, when he told me, I didn't realize he was talking about it, it would be years before I'd understand it. But he said, throughout your life, there are going to be people who want you to do something for them. And they're going to promise you all kinds of stuff if you'll do it. What you need to do is take a sheet of paper and write down all of the things they promised you and ask them to sign it. 
you're going to witness how quickly bullshit walks. That is brilliance because people will do and say anything they think you want to hear to get them to get you to do what they want. But the moment they're faced with backing up their promises, you're not going to see ink on that sheet. Yeah. So after you did make the decision to leave and Mark and Brian is no more, um, what happened? I mean, did, did the show remain in, in a different form? I'm just curious as to like what happened. No, uh, I announced, I did it categorically. I, the first person I told was Brian. And then I told the station, this was weeks, months later, actually, when I told the station and I had to get through that minutia because they were doing what my father said, promising everything. Uh, then I told the staff, I wanted them to have time to go get jobs if they needed to. And the prom, uh, the uh, the plan was that Brian would stay and do another form of, of, you know, the Brian show or whatever that was. And he was negotiating with the station every day. He would, he would thank everybody for their well wishes and that he was negotiating. And um, it went on for months, uh, this negotiation. And we had this live event. It was billed as Mark's last appearance. We did it at the House of Blues on Sunset. Place was packed out. And I thought that this is where Brian's going to announce that he's staying because it's been months. And that's the perfect place to do it. And, and he didn't. He once again said, um, you know, thanked everybody for their well wishes. And he was going to make a decision soon. Well, it better be damn soon because this is Wednesday. Our last day is Friday, two days away. And that morning I went in for my last show and around 7.30, Brian started to address the, the, uh, the decision of whether he's going to stay. And he said that he had ceased negotiations the night before and that he too would be leaving. So that was news to me. I did not know that until he said it on the air. And so that, became the end of Mark and Brian right there in that moment. Wow. How did he take it when you told him that you were leaving? His only concern was who I had told. That was the only thing that came out of his mouth was mm -hmm. that I told him that I would not be staying. I would leave at the end of this current contract. And he said, who have you told? I said, you, you're it. I wanted to do, I always try to do things in a respectful manner in the process that, that they would go through. Um, and so he would be the first and that was it. And then he, he asked me if I would keep it quiet for a little bit so that he could try to put some things together, you know, gather his thoughts. I said, sure, of course. And then after a month or two, uh, I eventually went back to him and said, I can't wait any longer. I need to tell the station. And I did. So, so yeah, I mean, it was kind of, I think it was understood and known that one of us was going to step away at some point. It was just, I was first. Yeah. I mean, did it feel like a, like an unhappy marriage was breaking up or, or like, how would you characterize it? I mean, cause you mentioned that, you know, it went from joy to a job. Um, you weren't finishing each other's sentences anymore. Um, and you know, you're, you're known as like a, a duo, right? I mean, it's a, you're a team. Yeah. Um, how, how did it, what, what, when everything was done, how did it feel? Well, the unhappy marriage had broken up years ago. We just got to a point where, look, David Lee Roth told a great story, and I share it because it really does fit this particular scenario. He, he was talking about, he was on the air with us, and he was talking about spending lots of time with the same people over and over and over. And he said, we would be sitting in some holiday inn on the road in some city somewhere about to do a show. And we would be eating room service again. And I would look over at Eddie and say, you know what, man, I hate the way you chew. And the beauty of that is that's what it is. It's true what whoever it was that said it, familiarity breeds contempt. And after a while, you simply get to a point where you can't take it anymore. And Brian and I had been pretty good in the early years about sharing our feelings privately, and we would work it out, you know, you know, hey, I didn't like what you said on stage about my hair or what, 
Oh, oh, oh God, dude, I'm so sorry. I didn't know. I, I, I got it. I, I understand. You know, that's a good, healthy communication between two guys who do what we do. Uh, but then after a while, it just got to a point like a marriage does where we couldn't speak. I mean, we were okay doing the show. Honestly, it felt like, because there was no communication anymore about what we were going to do on the air. And I truly felt, and I say it in the book, that I was doing one show and Brian was doing another. But our ability to speak about issues that we may have between us became severely strained. So what do you do in that scenario? You just don't speak. Yeah. Yeah. And, and sadly, in the world of entertainment or business or whatever, that becomes the norm, you know, for long-term relationships. And it was, it was the, it was the right decision for me to go on many levels, but on a professional, personal level, it was time for me and him to not be in the same room. Yeah. Um, I've been seeing you gesturing with your with your right arm uh, throughout the course of our conversation, and I see a tattoo on there. Can you share the story behind 213? Yes. Well, I'll start with this one on the shoulder, which you couldn't see. Um, I In the 2000s, I wrote, produced, and starred in two films, uh, the first one being Mother Ghost, um, and I brought in all my celebrity actor buddies to do it with me. And it's very hard in the independent film world to get something going. But Mother Ghost was very well received. Leonard Moulton gave it three out of four stars. And it took me seven years to find a distributor. Um, it's just tough in the independent world. And so my plan for 213, after the Mother Ghost thing, this is 2007, 213. My plan was brilliant. I'm going to write a script so good that Hollywood has to notice it. And so I spent a year writing 213 as a psychological thriller. Uh, I shopped it around, which is awful. I shopped it around for investors. I met one guy and he had like eight goons at the table with him. And, uh, and he offered me $5 million to, to make the film. The only two requirements would be that he was going to rewrite the script and that the movie would star his girlfriend, not his wife, of which he had both. And I thought, and this was the best I had gotten. So I decided to make it myself. Uh, we did, and it turned out nice, but it was the exact same thing. It's independent movie making, and you just can't get anywhere. I'm still proud of both. I worked as hard on those as I did on this book. So I tattooed them on my arm. There you go. The same arm. So if I want to get rid of them, I just chop off this one arm. We're good to go. It's simple, right? It's it's, <laughs> yeah. it's probably the most simple thing to do. Um, well, let's talk about where people can uh, buy Don't Bump the Record Kid, My Adventures with Mark and Brian. Well, um, thank you, Mike. I appreciate that. Um, the, the fact that I, in the middle of coming to the end of writing this book, it dawned on me that we're going to put this up for sale. There's going to be some money coming in. And I have a financial attorney. I thought I should call him and tell him this is coming, you know, so he can tell me what we're going to do with it. And it dawned on me to maybe give some of the money away to charity. And what would that be? And it immediately came to me. Um, the, the first part of my career was, you know, you, you're traveling town to town and, you know, you don't know many people. I had my cats and dogs throughout my entire life that, you know, with a radio career, I would be 10 hours away from home and I'd get home. I would quickly put fresh water in the bowl and some food. And what did my dog do? He came and jumped on me on the couch and loved on me and licked my face. What human being is going to celebrate you being 10 hours away? My dog did. And I have loved my animals unlike a person. And I'll be honest with you. I love my dogs and cats. And in their memory, um, I am giving 100% of the proceeds of this book to the rescue and welfare of animals in Southern California. Allison Eastwood, Clint's daughter, is building a rescue center. And so everything, 100%, I'm not making a penny on this goes to that. And so as we talked, we are self-released. 
there is one website where beginning December 6th, you can buy the audiobook, which turned out great. We spent a year on that. I narrate it. Basically, I read it to you. Uh, there are certain times I'm telling a story, like when Donnie Osmond was our first guest, we had our first earthquake, and Donnie, trying to calm everybody, sang an acoustic version on a, the worst keyboard I've ever heard. He sang 30 seconds of Go Away, Little Girl. We dropped that in the book, as we do in several places, and it scored, musically scored. So the audio book is quite good. The soft cover and the ebook, all of those will be available at the website, my adventures with Mark and Brian.com. My adventures with Mark and Brian.com. But I know, having met Mike, that many of his listeners are ignorant and stupid. So, what I did was <laughs> when I got the domain, I got not only my adventures, plural adventures, I also bought my adventure in case you leave out the S. You see, I'm thinking ahead before, before you can. So either of those will take you there. They'll be for sale December 6th. And all of your money will feed puppies and kittens and give them a good life. And we've got, uh, there's a QR code uh, for those of you watching uh, a clip on uh, on YouTube or on social media. You can just use that QR code. I will also put the web address in the show notes here, Mark. So people don't even have to write things down. And I'll make sure that uh, <laughs> the, the appropriate, uh, the appropriate, um, uh, links are are put in the uh, in the notes. Now, Mike, you know you notice I have the book cover and my QR code here uh, as my background, but I'm looking at yours. Oh yeah, and obviously it's an image you found on the internet. But I'm trying to decide that looks like the fat end of baseball bats, or <laughs> it could be marble. Uh, marble. What do you even know what that is behind these? You? These are corks. These are corks, Mark Thompson. So I call the show on corking a story, and these are all. Oh. These are all corks that came out of wine bottles at some point in time. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Mike. I'm just not thinking. Of course it is. Uncorking the story and your background. I love that, Mike. I'm embarrassed that I didn't notice. Oh, quite all right. Those are different multicolored corks yes. that you have behind you. Brilliant. Yes. I did not drink all of these bottles last night. Um, just over the course of my career doing this show. <laughs> um, well, Mark, thank you for letting me uncork your story. This has been a fun conversation. Mike, thank you. you you're a fun guy. You're very funny. The, all those nasty, rude jokes that you told about your wife before we went on the air. There's no need in repeating those. They're vile, but very, very funny, Mike. So we'll keep that between us. That's right. Well, she's heard them all, so it's all <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Michael, thank you for putting me on, buddy. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Uncorking a Story. If you'd like more information about today's guest or to find out more about Mike, go to uncorkingastory.com. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate, and review us at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tune in every week to hear Mike Carlin uncork a new story.